But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> I think I, I, I've told the story in this podcast about how on my very first training flight, a a basically a rabbit. I mean, they call them ground squirrels, but it's kind of like a, a you know that kind of a critter. Um, ran out onto the runway in front of my airplane, and we hit him with one of the main gear and 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 ended him. All right, and, um, I've told that story a number of different times, but this story that we're seeing on the internet is a whole different kind of critter on the runway story here. Okay, you guys seen this story? <laughs> You seen this story about the about the uh, aircraft? What was it? I don't even know what kind of aircraft it was, but uh, on landing, uh, hit an alligator on the runway. Jeb, Jeb, alligator uh, on the runway. Don't 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 start pointing fingers at me. I wasn't there. <laughs> but uh. see, this is something. I know. I know you have very real concerns from time to time about deer on the runway. But have has an alligator ever made it out onto your runway? Not that I've seen. No. Um, but it's Which bound to have happened. That it's not possible. It's, I'm sure there's one that's crawled across there at some point. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Why did the alligator cross the runway? To get to the terminal. Uh, to get to the terminal. <laughs> to get to the terminal. <laughs> to get to the FBO. You know. <laughs> that, has a, that, has a better, that, that scans better. I like it. Pilot. Pilot. Oh, stop the video here. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Okay. See. Um, Pilot hits alligator while landing plane at Orlando Exec, which is a not inconsiderable airport there, up just north of uh, or the north part of the Orlando area. Um, yeah, um, it says the story says only in Florida, probably not, but only I get the in point. Florida. Yeah, a pilot fatally struck an alley, fatally struck the alligator. Darn you, killing alligators last week while I landing, know, really? landing a plane at Orlando Exec. The pilot said his plane was hit by the hit his said his plane hit the gator. But he couldn't provide f- further details. Uh, posted a picture on Facebook. There's a picture here of the gator on the center line, just kind of like probably dead because this guy's standing way too close, way too. Yeah, close. he's got his. He's doing his thumbs up nonsense. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's a de- that's that's what we call an ex gator. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, someone said something. Uh, I don't know if it was in this story or if it was one of the analysis I saw on social media, but they talked about how the alligator. Didn't it's not like the alligator hit by the landing gear. Apparently, the alligator struck the leading edge of the wing, is what I heard. Apparently, so. the, the apparently the alligator jumped up. Yeah, jump. Yeah, that's my like, I'm getting at here. Jump. Now, they, yeah. they do that. They yeah, do now, that. Now, David, this is reminiscent of a story that you told probably years ago on this podcast. Um, did you have an incident messing around with alligators who tried to jump up at you when you were flying ultralights? I would imagine, right? Yeah. Uh, what happened? Was was flying an air cam out of Sebring. Uh, air cam on floats, and uh, with uh, an old buddy of mine, and uh, he's like, we'd been flying low over the water, tracking alligators, and we'd come behind them, and they'd go bloop, and under, and over on uh, one of the shores, we saw a big bull courting two females. Okay. So we rolled over that direction, and one might and, ask uh, how you thought you knew that particular detail, but I'll buy it. Okay, yeah. Well, that, that was a description of my buddy who was a resident local, and okay. apparently it was that time of year. All right. Yep. And uh, the uh, bull was a great big sucker, fourteen, fifteen foot long. He was huge. Uh huh. And we go flying over, 
And I make a pass at about 25 feet. And my buddy says, oh, no, we can get lower than that. And he said, my airplane, he shook the stick and took it. He comes by at about six feet. And this bull comes within a foot of getting one of our tires. Ooh, yeah. The whole upper half of his body came off the ground. And if it hadn't been for wind and engine noise, I'm sure we would have heard his jaws snap together. He came back around again. Made another low pass, a little higher this time. It Gator did it again. And he said, you know, I didn't know they did that. <laughs> <laughs> Jump up. Uh, okay. So do gators, uh, Jeb, have you ever seen this in your backyard? Do gators try and get birds out of the air? I mean, that's sort of what the suggestion here is. That, that... Um, Has that a... I've not seen, I've not seen a gator specifically snapping at a bird. Uh, I've seen gators snapping, uh, let me rephrase that, at a bird flying over him. I've seen gators snapping at birds um, that are by the waterside. And uh, there were some vultures a few, I don't know, a couple months ago, um, who seemed like they were just taunting the gator. Mm -hmm. Um, They... The the water level was fairly dry, so they were on um, the the lake bank, if you will, the bank of the the waterway, and uh, just kind of hopping around. The gator was about halfway out of the water and staring at him, and every now and then he'd lunge at him or or jump, and they'd bounce back. And and then it was like, I don't know, maybe it was Charlie's turn, and then he'd come, and he'd dance in front of the alligator for a few minutes. And I don't know if it was a club they were trying to join or... Uh, if they were seriously crazy, you know. Yeah, you know. Um, let's mess with the alligator. Why don't we, right? You know? Yeah, let's, it's a boring day. Let's do something. Uh, yeah, right. Hold, <laughs> hold my carrion. Watch this. That, that's right. Hold my carrion. Well, my, my, my question out of this. Put my, put my carrion under your seat and let me try this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What, David? My whole question out of this, and I've flown out of, in and out of exact quite a number of times, and I've seen alligators in at the edge of water near exact uh i've never seen one crossed on the runway but my question was okay this was a navajo that hit it that's a fairly substantial twin uh how many more alligators does it take before you could reupholster the whole airplane and alligator <laughs> exactly well not only that but now does the, the pilot now get a, a matching set of alligator luggage that and how about the meat for gator tail? We yeah, love gator tail. Yeah, there you go. I'm sure there's a restaurant nearby that, that would want uh, dibs. Who? Uh, well, that's that's kind of uh, that's interesting. Actually, it's uh, trivia. But uh, who who gets? So alligators are protected. You're you're not supposed to intentionally mess with an alligator that's not messing with you, right? That's sort of basically the rule. Um, yeah, which is always kind of pretty good advice to begin with. Yeah, right. But yeah. you know. Um, so, but the fact that this was a sort of an accident, so to speak, uh, I wonder who gets possession of this alligator, or do the authorities just take it away and, and dispose oh, of it? Oh, I'm sure the airport got possession of it. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Maybe, well, this yeah. would be an interesting line in the uh, wildlife strike reports, uh, which sure. are dominated yeah. usually by birds and deer. I, yeah. I wonder if there's yeah. an NTSB on this. I don't know. Is there... Um, and how much damage was done to the Navajo? 
I mean, I saw a picture. I I have recollection. I don't see it now, but I have recollections of a picture that showed a a, a pretty good dent in the leading edge. But that's I would expect because yeah. um, at eleven eleven foot alligator, that puppy's got to weigh several hundred pounds. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it depends on what part of the alligator was actually actually struck the wind. Now you're now you're making me go look this up. I was actually. That's what I dropped the hint. Did you find it? Yeah. Well, it looks Not like yet. blood draining out of draining out of its jaw, so I'm going to guess that it hit somewhere close to the head and neck. Yeah. Right. Now, I'm assuming the pictures right. we're seeing here are definitely after dark. I'm cur- I'm trying to read this whether this happened after dark as well. I'm guessing it did. Otherwise, you would have seen the alligator on the runway and done something, I guess. I would imagine. Well, it says on Tuesday night. Yeah, okay. There we go. Okay, thank you. That's what I was looking for. All right. Well, anyways, I don't know. Jeb may find the thing, and we'll, we'll return to this. I book. may find the thing, and I may not. Okay. But in Nin- the meantime, yeah, David? Nineteen reports of alligator aircraft incidents since 1990, according to the FAA's Wildlife Strike Database. Okay. 19. And that's as reported by Avweb. Nineteen strikes in almost 30 years. Okay. Well, sure. We can improve that record. Come on. Let's go, Jeb. Well, I'll tell you, you know. I'm looking at that database now, and um, it's got uh, all kinds of different criteria, um, and you know, it just lists, you know, into the species you're 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 looking you're interested in, and sure enough, American alligator is there. So let's look at let's look at Florida alone. Okay, I didn't know such a database existed. I, really, they act- oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. And what other sorts of creatures are on this list? Birds, well, well, birds, coyote, of birds, of course, make American coot, American crow. You know, All right, scroll birds. down, horses, horses, coyotes. All right, um, yeah. loons. I didn't even know we had. You know, um, what was that? Uh, let's see, ospreys, owls. A lot of these are oh, prairie dogs. There's, there's a good one. There's one. Yeah. That's effectively, Coyotes. I, yeah. that's effectively what I hit. Although we didn't report it, actually. Now that I stop and think about it. I guess it's because well, we didn't uh, damage the airplane. But uh, I was on on takeoff roll from uh, uh, Clark County at Airport in Indiana when I abandoned it because there were uh, coyotes on the runway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't the, want to mix it up with the coyotes for a number of different reasons. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, basically because I didn't want to hurt my airplane. Uh, yeah, really. Yeah, uh, and plus I wouldn't and, want to. And the, Coyotes were on the field because deer had gotten over the fence. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's two inside-the-fence hazards that aren't supposed to be there. Uh, we sent a tug out to drive up and down the runway while they, uh, the uh, Unicom basically told people to uh, find a place, hold, because we were clearing life, wildlife off the runway. And... Uh, when I finally had a chance to take off again about 30 minutes later, it was like they weren't more than 50 feet off the runway and, and laying in the grass. It's like they, they weren't perturbed at all. They're like, okay, you guys get out of the way. We're going deer hunting. <laughs> and it wasn't even in season. It wasn't even in season. Oh, my. They weren't wearing the orange vest or nothing. <laughs> You know, get the sign the disclaimer to be allowed to go out into the trench to to uh, get up close to the airplanes like you used to. Um, hey, welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. 
I'm Jack Hodgson coming to you from high atop Lookout Point in uh, beautiful Nottingham, New Hampshire, talking to my two good friends here uh, on the on the Skype here this afternoon. And uh, well, sort of. Yeah, no, I guess I am talking to both of them on Skype, but we'll explain. Um, yeah. This is a so continuing our unbroken streak now up to three of consecutive episodes where one of us has a microphone issue. Um, and you, as you all can hear, uh, Jeb is actually on his landline phone today because we could not for the life of us get his uh, a microphone talking to Skype um, for some reason. So, uh, And rather than just spend the whole afternoon letting Jeb fight with his computer, we decided to start recording and let him fix it at yeah. his leisure. At his leisure. Um, so, but, so I guess I'll start out by saying hi to Jeb. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing? From, from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, everybody, you guys all know this stuff. Jeb yeah, Burnside. I, I've been better. I've been better. I'm tired of this uh, the Skype problem. I wish they would stop upgrading it, um, but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, people have been, more and more these days, people are encouraging me to explore other uh, voice over IP solutions, and maybe uh-huh. maybe the time has uh-huh. come for us to experiment with some other voice over P th- uh, voice over IP things. Um, so I don't know, or, or we'll figure this one out. I don't know. Anyways, what else is going on, Jeb? I, I want to. So you just got back from a trip, and uh, and I later a little bit later on, I'm going to ask you to report on that trip a little bit. But uh, um, you've been home for about ten days and put out a magazine in the meantime, and yeah, trying to trying to recover from. Uh... Uh, from it all, but uh, pretty much, pretty much done. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Other yeah. than that, did you, you get a chance to have any do anything fun lately? No, no. Okay. I've been working. I've been. I, I may I had a trip overseas or international trip. Came home, cranked out a magazine, uh, took a deep breath, and went off on another trip. Um, came back, cranked out a magazine. And today I'm talking to you. Yeah, well, all right. We're going to have some fun right now, so we'll try and try yeah. and uh, brighten yeah. your life. How's that sound? While, while, while I have the floor, though, yes. um, the FAA Wildlife Strike Database shows four entries since 2010, since January 1, 2010, uh, involving alligators in the state of Florida. I didn't search other states. I don't know why. Okay. But... Uh, one at, I'm sorry, two at um, Fort Myers, Southwest Florida International, really? and two at Orlando International. The one we were talking about is not in the database. Okay. Okay. But two at Fort yeah, Myers two and two at uh, at uh, Orlando International. Okay. Right. And one of them involved an American Airlines 737 that sustained uh, landing gear damage, according to the database. Really? Oh, it's a good thing one of them didn't mix with the United flight. No telling what the flight attendants would have done to that one. I tell you, I tell you, uh, that's when you definitely call catering. That's right. (laughs) I was, uh, yeah, okay. I was on a Southwest flight this last week, and the... uh, the uh, Southwest flight attendants like to mess around during the doing their announcements and talking to the crowd, and and uh, they they were chiding some passenger by by threatening to go go all united on them. They said we're going to go united. <laughs> yeah, you better better stay, you know you know just be calm down, or I'm just going to walk. Don't want to go all united on you or something like that. So uh, they're still having fun with that. This 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 much time later on. My other good friend here in our virtual hangar is uh, from uh, the air capital of the world, Wichita, Kansas. Dave Higdon. Hi, David. What's going on with you? Well, just another lovely summer in the air capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, summer is trying to set up permanent residence with only uh, intermittent luck so far. So we've had some pretty pleasant days. 
Yeah. I've been busy in the airplane shop, been busier in the writing shop, uh, and basically just on a dead run to try to get the decks cleared to uh, bail out of here for Wisconsin in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of, it's sneaking up on us, isn't it? It's uh, it's uh, coming. Yeah, it's sneaking up like a M1 tank. I know. <laughs> yeah. And and I think of I think of uh, Oshkosh the the time till Oshkosh in a slightly different way than most people. I'm currently at let me think here. I'm currently at five days at home before Oshkosh. So uh, yeah. Because yeah. I I have two big trips between now and then. So anyways, uh, you've been riding your motorcycle, David. You were telling me. Uh, yeah, uh, although I didn't get the ride in yesterday that I wanted to, uh, Mother Nature decided that the morning shower that I took before uh, opening up the uh, riding kit was not going to be sufficient. It was going to ride on, rain on me halfway to my destination, 85 yeah, yeah. miles away, and two-thirds of the way back. And something about spending a 100 and 30 out of 170 miles getting wet just kind of dampened my enthusiasm so pun intended. yeah i know right yeah yeah, yeah. no that sounds so right spent to me. so spent more days more time in the airplane shop and uh, got a lot done there and was happy with the results and came home and fixed a nice dinner petted the dog and uh kicked back and watched godzilla movies Okay, you lead a wild and crazy life. Sounds like a perfect day. I know. <laughs> I know. Anyways, what's going on here? Uh, oh, so I wanted to ask you. So I mentioned I came back on Southwest just recently. Um, I I was traveling. I was in San Antonio, Texas, and um, and coming back from New Hampshire, and I got one of those weird routings where I uh, actually I changed planes in Tampa, Florida. All right, which is one of these go south in order to go north routings. All right, that happens from time to time. And if you look at a map, you'll see that much of the direct line, the straight line distance between San Antonio and Tampa is over the Gulf of Mexico. And so I was surprised when our flight didn't go anything like direct. Um, it actually sort of went nor- well, east-northeast from, from uh, San Antonio, um, almost headed for the uh, Baton Rouge area. It was actually, nor- it, was, it stayed over land. Um, and... Uh, and then roundabout Baton Rouge kind of area is when it veered south, and uh, and it actually went feet wet over the Gulf in the Tallahassee area, um, and then followed the coastline a little bit down, and then and then into the Tampa area. And I was curious if anybody it, it, and so I, I sent you guys a link to the uh, the what was it FlightAware um, yeah. track uh, for it. And one thing is pretty obvious. Um, is that they were avoiding some weather um, if you if you look at that that uh, that image um, although my point my question stands that they could have avoided the weather by going out over the Gulf too and sticking to basically a direct route between the two points and so I was wondering if you had any, if there are any thoughts on why we didn't go direct and and I guess what I'm getting at here is what the, what do they call it etops what what when does are there limits to how far a two-engine 737 can go over water is i guess my what i'm getting at here finally yeah there's 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 an etops thing going on which is um you got to be depending on the aircraft depending on the route you got to be 90 120 150 180 minutes from a uh, suitable airport on one engine right but although you got to have fuel and all that other stuff 
But let me point out one little thing here. Yeah. Um, this uh, image, which is, is fine as far as it goes, this image doesn't show what's over the Gulf because it can't. Right. Oh, it's not the, showing you all the weather down uh, there. Oh, I never thought of that, right. of course. So, yeah. so this could be the, the lesser of the evils. And on a normal day, they would have gone direct. I don't know. Is the yeah, quick okay. Answer. Because uh, although they'd, they'd be over water this whole time, they would never be more than, you know, I mean, you know they're technically over yeah. water for two hours. They're like 10 minutes from land if they turn left, you know. And, right. ETOPS is probably not the issue. Uh, yeah. Now, all of this presumes, of course, that the aircraft had rafts aboard also, okay. and the rafts were in good condition. Um, I don't know that either. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and the third thing is that the airplane actually has to be set up and approved for ETOPS. And yeah. Sal don't believe Southwest has every one of their 737s right. delivered with that approval, in, right. you know, even 60-minute. But 60-minute, yeah. I think, is standard. And yeah. there's, like you pointed out, there's no place along that route where you wouldn't have been less than 60 minutes from a suitable alternative. Yeah. Right. But the radar is not showing you what's between That's, the Gulf Coast and the Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah. That's a very good point and, that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, there could and be. And given the way the weather trends in that, you know, in that area, uh, I would bet that it was more comfortable the way you went than the way you would like to have gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'll bet if you went back and you looked at the uh, historical weather data and satellite coverage for that area for that time of that day, that you would see a lot more uh, going on. Um, but uh, you know, it is what it is. I, I, I flew that. I flew most of that route in May from here to to uh, Louisiana. Right. And I had more overwater, you know, route than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But. Uh, it is what it is. Yeah. No, I think the most compelling explanation is what you suggested about there being unseen weather there out over, or unseen by us right now. They they knew about yeah. it. And uh, yeah. um, there was weather. There was a sort of a hurricane-y thing had come on shore a few days earlier. And uh, um, so I'm sure there was a lot of other weather out there. That's, I'm, I'm buying that explanation, that there was unseen weather out over the water. And so they, they had to uh, yeah, divert around to the, the north. Boat. Folks at Southwest, which would have much preferred a more direct route, just based on the fuel savings that mm-hmm. that would have occurred alone, not to mention the time savings. Right. Yeah. Uh, probably would have saved them 10% of their fuel and 15% of their time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, moving on here. Sometimes direct isn't the way to go. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm, I, I'm not challenging their decision. I was just curious what it what, what, what was the thinking, what was the thought process there. Well, it, this brings up something that I mentioned in an article for somebody somewhere recently, <laughs> was talking about uh, guys that are planning a trip, pilots that are planning a trip, and they'll look at the weather and they go, oh, I'm not going today, or I'm scrubbing the trip altogether because they can't go GPS direct due to weather. And my question was, what about going around? And they, they, they look at me and they raise their eyebrows and they go, what? Go around? But, but it, then it's not a straight line. It's like, yeah, okay. They need to look at one of Jeb's trips between uh, Florida and Oshkosh. You know, it's like That's right. That's zigging right. and zagging, finding all the spots and the, you know, the safe route. Well, yeah. And it, 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 in a number of my trips from Wichita to Florida, from Wichita to the East Coast, uh, from Wichita to Wisconsin, 
uh, first trip in the Comanche to Wisconsin, I set out weather passing through uh, Wisconsin for an hour at Ottumwa, Iowa, and then still went 100 miles out of my way to get around on the backside of it to get into Oshkosh that day. And that was the window. If I didn't take that window to go, I wasn't going that day, period. Mm-hmm. But yeah. sitting for a little while and in detouring, and I came right into uh, uh, Whitman Field, watched the storm move east over Lake Winnebago, got the airplane tied down at Weeks, got my gear, and as I was coming out of the hotel, the second wave came in, and it was IMC for the next six hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Jeb, you were trying to say something there? Well, just that um, um, you, you got an airplane. You're in the airplane. Your airplane's moving. Unless the weather is moving faster than your airplane, which is, you know, kind of an indication you need to get a different airplane. But unless the, <laughs> you know, you can always outrun the weather. Mm-hmm. And especially and, in this day know, and age when you have access to so much real-time, um, you know, indication of exactly. where and what and how. Exactly. And, you know, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, weather actually plays a part in this next story, maybe, if we choose to go that way. Um, so I got my pilot's license in, I believe it was 92-ish. Um, David, and you got, David, you got, I believe you got your 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 private pilot license about the same era right when did you get your private pilot i got my private in 95 in 95 okay jeb when did jeb you and you go much back go much back further that's good english right yeah you go back much further (laughs) than us when when did you get your private jeb I got my private in 74. Bingo. We have a winner. Okay, here we go. This ding, is, ding, 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 ding. This is what a friend of mine was, I was chatting with a friend of mine, a, a student pilot friend of mine the other day, and he's reading all this stuff. And he says, Jack, did you read this? Jack, did you? And, and, uh, and a lot of interesting things he's been pointing my way. And this one is one of them. We're coming up on, uh, on the anniversary of the, uh, the, uh, when the air traffic controllers first went on strike and were then fired and replaced back in uh-huh. 1981. Um, and so you were flying back then, Jeb. What, so yeah, I had I had just got my instrument rating actually. Oh, oh okay, um, all right. What, what was what was that? Or I guess like? I was. Um, did, no, did I you? guess I was working on my instrument rating. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, that was a mess. Um, um, I was uh, involved in a flying club at the time, mm-hmm. and we had you know a bunch of airplanes scattered around various airports around uh, the D.C. area. Um, the towered facilities for our VFR operations, most of our operations were VFR. The towered facilities weren't that big a deal um, at the time. The big deal was uh, the en route environment mm-hmm. yeah. and trying to go IFR. Um, from you know one one area to another, if you will, um, there were two things that that came into vogue to to soften the blow or to make this system work. One was what we call now, or I guess what was then called this also, is a tower in route uh, type of, of flight plan mm-hmm. where you're not going into uh, a center's an air route traffic control center's airspace. You're staying in uh, approach control airspace. Okay. Yep. And the, the, those limits are both lateral and um, um, 
uh, vertical in the sense that you can be over the same geographic spot at one altitude and be talking to an approach control, and at the same spot at a higher altitude, you'd want to be talking or you would be talking to center. Um, so there were a whole bunch of what we call tech or tower and route control uh, routes that were published. If you want to go from Richmond to Boston, for example, um, in, in any kind of substantial airplane, you would be normally climbing into the into the flight levels and, and zooming on your way. Well, there wasn't enough. Uh, there weren't enough controllers to mm-hmm. deal with that. Yeah. So the idea was to. I think they may have expanded the tops of. Uh, of some approach controls temporarily to accommodate some flights, mm-hmm. but you would you would route your flight, um, both uh, um, the literal route as well as the altitude, to stay within tower in route control airspace, and you were not as subject to delays as you might have otherwise been. The other feature that came out of that was the so-called reservation system. Yes. And it was actually called General Aviation Reservation System, the GAR. Right. And uh, it's, it's not unlike what um, we have today for certain um, airports during certain events, like, say, the Kentucky Derby mm-hmm. or, uh, or a Oshkosh. NASCAR race. Well, don't they or be- Oshkosh. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, where, where you, you have to get a reservation to operate IFR to or from that facility. And there were, and I forget what the the window of opportunity was. If it was 24 hours, or 48 hours, or 72 hours, or something like that, before your your flight plan uh, was to go into effect, you had to call and get a reservation to do that. And it had to be on the flight plan in the remarks block um, and various other constraints that were imposed so yeah it was a deal and it was a deal for a few years mm-hmm. uh until oh gosh i uh so happens i was working for nbaa in, in a, a few years after that mm-hmm. and back the, in the, the mid-80s, national business so, aviation association right yeah correct yeah um dave was at aopa around the same time yeah and we still had uh, a lot of congestion. We still had a lot of delays in the system. Uh, NBAA back in the day instituted something they called the FAST plan, which was fly around um, saturated sectors and, and terminals. Um, we also started uh, linking up with the with the FAA's, uh, what was it called back then? It was, uh, oh, it was um, CF Squared. Central Flow Control Facility. Mm-hmm. It was uh, out at Reston or Dulles Airport or something like that, associated with the uh, the Washington Center. But that particular facility back then was fairly new and uh, was not necessarily well-known, A. B, was not necessarily letting civilians in to, to monitor their activities and whatnot. Uh, we were able to... Uh, get access to that so that we could advise our members um, how they should be planning their flights on an on a ongoing, um, uh, you know, given mm-hmm. the technology at the time, mm-hmm. as much of a real-time basis as we could, we could come up with. Yeah. 
uh, it was it was quite a deal, and it was for several years. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm kind of curious about the first I don't know few days, the first week or something like that. I mean, did 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 people arrive at airports and there was just nobody in the tower? Um, was it that bad, or did management manage to keep the towers open? Or? Management kept the towers open. Uh, there's there's an old Herb Block cartoon of uh, some woman, some some janitorial type uh, cleaning the floor in the tower and and talking on. The, uh, um, talking on the radio, I said, "All right, I'm going to let one more of you guys land, then I got to finish these floors." <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of thing, and it, it was absurd, of course. But soups were, in fact, controlling traffic, and, and they weren't doing a very good job at first either, uh, because they hadn't been on the scopes in a while. And, yeah, they hadn't and, been on uh, a station in a long time. Uh huh. And there was a lot of military controllers that were pressed into service. There were a lot of retired controllers that were pressed back into service, both civilian and military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was it was a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't you know I don't recall. Maybe I just wasn't flying the airlines that much back then. I don't recall you know cancellations uh, on a wholesale basis. There certainly were a lot of delays. Yeah. Um, given the nature of the of the, uh, the playing field at the time, but uh, you know that's a, that's kind of a distant memory these days. Yeah. Did well. I uh, I remember there, there being cancellations. Uh, the first forty eight hours were the worst. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Of, bet. Because they they had supervisors enough to staff up a lot of these facilities, but some of the supervisors hadn't been on a station in so long. They technically weren't qualified again, so they exactly. had to double up with somebody, a supervisor who was still qualified, mm-hmm. to get that signed off. It's like you haven't been flying a while; you got to do three takeoffs and three landings. And oh, by the way, you got to fly at night, so you got to do these at night too. And then being able to go on your trip, and that's what the first forty-eight hours or so was like. Maybe even seventy-two. Yeah. Uh, general aviation had to beat and browbeat and poke its nose in because there was a tremendous amount of pressure from what was then called the Air Transport Association to basically devote all the resources to getting the airlines back on schedule and locking out general aviation completely. Yep. And that went over like a lead sled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we well, had about three years some there. people just great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's my question. So, and, and so certainly delays and, and, um, I mean, delays and, and complications and working out a new workflow and that kind of thing is it, I'm going to ask this question as a little bit of a, of a dramatic fashion, but let me ask this question. All right. Did anybody die? What were, what were the safety implications of this whole thing? To my recollection, no one died. There were no accidents. Um, that were attributed to uh, um, reduced control, lack of yeah. Uh, yeah, lack of lack of air traffic controllers in the towers or, or behind the scopes. Um, I would like to say that no, the FAA restricted traffic flows to accommodate uh, the number of controllers that who were available. Uh, but I can't really say that because I don't really know. Right. Uh, clearly, there were restrictions in put into place that were designed to recognize the available staffing levels. Um, 
But were there close calls? Were there near misses? Were there problems? Sure. But I can't really point to one. Yeah. My friend who, who turned me on to this story um, was specifically referred to a, a story written, written just recently in, I'm sorry, I'm dragging, in Airfax, uh, at least on their website. I don't know if it was in the magazine, but Airfax. Um, was, I think it was Dick Collins' story. It was Dick yeah. Collins' piece, yeah, Richard Collins' piece. Um, in, in uh, I'm looking at the it, it being published on Airfax, dated yeah. uh, June 14 of 2017. Um, and in his story, he tells uh, 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 about the, those few days, a week or two, right after the uh, the changeover. And he, and he describes a lot of things. He, for example, he describes one flight in the first day or two where he did some pretty serious scud running and, and stretched uh-huh. the rules a little bit in terms of what was allowed in the airspace and things like that. Um, and that's kind of one of the things I wonder about is that, so, you know, they, they cut back on the number of flight plans they were allowing or whatever, whatever mechanism, the mechanism they used to throttle down air travel, but what about the people who just decided not to use the system because the system wasn't uh-huh. available to them? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I was thinking mainly of just the total the overall right. system. Yeah. I mean, if we went back and started looking at CFIT accidents or, or um, um, continued VFR into IMC accidents for that time frame, uh, you'd probably find some, some bump. Yeah. 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 Which kind of segues well, me to. I'm sorry, David. Do, do you want a, one more thought on this? I, well, just a, a closing thought. It, it was a whole growing and relatively new segment of general aviation that was able to continue flying pretty much totally unaffected by this to the extent that we weren't subject to working with controllers, the hang glider and the ultralight people. And I remember being out at an airport in Pennsylvania uh, and having a uh, a sheriff's car pull in and proceed to ask us if we were allowed to be flying that day. You know, you have a reservation. Are you in the system? Uh, Can I see your flight plan? And we're we're like, okay, we're new. You don't know anything about us. And we're not affected by what's going on there because... We're not using airplanes for travel. We're not using them for business. We're going to take off from here. We're going to fly from Hanover to, uh, oh, what's the name of that town? Big fight there in the Civil War. Uh, yeah, okay. Oh, that town. <laughs> that town, yeah. There was a couple uh, of big fights during the Civil War, is my point. In Pennsylvania. Gettysburg. Uh, thank you. Okay. Uh, it's just totally blank. We're going to fly over to Gettysburg. Get a moon pie and a soda, and fly back here. Well, can I see your paperwork for the flight? We don't have any paperwork for the flight. We're not flying in controlled airspace. We don't have to fly in controlled airspace. Well, uh, uh, can I see your license? None of us have one. <laughs> well, well how can you fly without license? And finally, one of the guys that owned one of the airplanes dug out a copy of Part 103 and showed it to the guy. And the guy said, seriously? You can do that? <laughs> yeah, seriously? He shook you his can head do that? and says, can, can I hang on to this? And the guy said, sure. Can we go fly now? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, this says you don't, you don't even have to have lessons. Nope. We're free to go kill ourselves. Okay. Shook his head, walked back, and uh, about six weeks later, he showed up when uh, things were a little bit closer to normal. 
because uh, he'd heard that there was skydiving going on there, too, and he was really interested in learning to jump. Oh, uh, okay. So you could have converted him. Yeah, but it was it was a weird few days because uh, it was a little bit like after 911, uh, the, the, the attacks on that day. If you went out flying, uh, the first few days you had to be on an instrument flight plan. Uh, yeah. And you were very, very likely in the first few days to uh, be approached by some law enforcement officer or another who hadn't got the word that, yes, we're allowed back in the airspace. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you try to be patient and you try to say, yeah, sorry, you didn't get the latest news. And, well, according to the last information I had, yeah, well, that last information was two days old, uh, 48 hours that's, later. That's a whole nother, yeah. The days after 9-11, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, that's a yeah. different thing. But we'll, let's not talk. Yeah. Let's not, yeah, that's, we could. Yeah, we won't forever. go there today. But um, where I do want to go today is to see whether there's a connection or kind of segue at least into the whole subject of ATC privatization, which is, oh, bingo. Uh, yes. which is a, 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 a real, a very real possibility at this time. Um, and, uh, and, and to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, ATC privatization probably would trigger user fees as well, or at least as a chance. Um, and well, absolutely will, because they have said that that's how they're going to finance yeah. the system as far as some users are concerned. Yeah. So l- let's just let's just put a stake in the ground here. Um, do we think ATC privatization is a good thing or a bad thing? Bad. 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 Yeah. Okay. Very bad. Very bad. Yes. Um, and and that's one of the and, and one of the things that I think would be worse of it. It would it would really be a drag if it was more expensive to fly. All right. But what would be even worse in my view, or one of the things that would be even worse, is that so many people would choose not to use the system um, uh-huh. if there were user fees. And uh, well, and when I talk it, to people about user fees, that's one of the first things I point out is it's like it's going to be more dangerous for everybody because it's going to be people who are you know. They're going to try to the game the system. Yeah, right. Exactly. Who, who, well, on, who are outrunning the scud? Yeah, exactly. You know, because so on a yeah on a scale of bad, I'm going to take a tip from the movie Spinal Tap. Okay. This <laughs> one goes. This one goes to eleven. Yeah, it goes past eleven if you ask me. But I take your point. Yes. Um, why is it so bad? All kidding aside, why is ATC privatization such a bad idea? Well, in addition to uh, user fees. Um, let's back up a little bit. Yeah. The, the people who, uh, and this was back in the fifties when the, when the first real federal aviation act got its legs, um, people who put that legislation together built into it, uh, access for all users, public, commercial, private, military, everything and everybody had the same access to the national airspace system um, as everybody else. Mm -hmm. So there was no first, it was basically first come, first serve. There was no, hey, wait a second, I got an airline logo on my tail, I get to go in front of you. And uh, there was, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, I remember a lot of of uh, friction along the lines of why is that little airplane uh, taking off in front of us? Well, we yeah. got you know there's 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 maybe four seats on that thing and there's 120 on this. Why do we have to wait for them? And the the first come first serve um, 
philosophy behind the national airspace system is, is the fundamental reason for that. Um, thankfully, that system still exists in the sense that there is no prioritization uh, by ATC, uh, certainly not formally, uh, by ATC or the FAA or anybody else as to who can access the airspace and when. Uh, yes, we have TFRs, and yes, we have uh, flow control, and, and yes, we have reservation systems and things like that. But nothing uh, in any of that gives anybody any other right to, to operate in the system before someone else. Um, that, in my book and a lot of other people's books, goes by the wayside when ATC system gets privatized, mm -hmm. uh, if it gets privatized. And that, to me, is the biggest bugaboo out there, just as, as you pointed out with respect to uh, user fees. Uh, people are going to, going to avoid the system if they can't get access to it, mm -hmm. regardless of whether they would have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a problem. Yeah. And that's a real problem. It's a real safety problem. It's also just a fundamental equity problem, but that's a whole other topic. Right. Yeah. Well, let's let's boil this down to some fundamentals. First off, the whole push for this is coming from a very small segment of the American population and business community. It's coming from Airlines for America, and it's coming from a couple of members of Congress, one of whom has had a lengthy relationship or used to have a lengthy relationship with the lady that was uh, one of the high muckety-mucks at Airlines for America. Uh, they were living together, and this guy chairs one of the relevant committees. The whole foundation for their argument is flawed. It's blowing snow. They say, oh, well, why aren't they using GPS like Europe is? Well, we are using GPS like Europe is. Well, why aren't we modernizing it as fast as Europe is? Well, we're modernizing it as fast as our population of aircraft users and owners and operators can absorb. That's a, such a small population in other parts of the world compared to the United States. So we've got far more aircraft, far more pilots that have to come up to speed in terms of equipment. I'm talking about ADSB here. Mm -hmm. uh, we're up to date. Our system is online and operating. We're waiting for the users to meet the deadline to be compliant so that the FAA can start using ADSB more effectively. And guess who's at the tail end of equipping to use ADSB? The membership of Airlines for America. They're barely at 16%. Uh, general aviation is a little farther ahead than that, and business aviation is somewhere in between. Nobody's where they should be in terms of the timeline. But we're modernizing it, and we have been for decades. And we've got people out there that use GPS to go direct, weather permitting, all the time, including the airlines. Uh, I've had flights that arrived early because we got a rerouting to go GPS direct. And when I asked the captain as I was leaving the airplane, how did that happen? He goes, well, the only reason we could take it was because we knew that there was a gate available when we got here. Otherwise, we would have stuck with the original route, mm -hmm. which brings up something else. The Airlines for America's complaint about the delays. 
delays have been going down in recent years, Mm -hmm. and the primary causes of delays remain two things of which privatizing will not change. Right. Weather and scheduling. Right. And when the airlines schedule more flights collectively, more flights for an airport than the runway acceptance rate will allow them to get in, you're going to get delays. That's an airline scheduling problem. Privatizing the air traffic control won't change that. Right. And my last real strong put here is the latest version of the House bill exempts general aviation from user fees and has general aviation continuing to pay fuel excise taxes as we do now. Don't buy it. No, don't. It's a divide and conquer. And once they get the change that they want, there's nothing that will prevent them from coming back and saying, well, we're needing to realign the rules because you guys, you know, they're, they're saying we don't pay our fair share, but they're the first ones who are saying we're going to let you off the hook on user fees. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Yeah, That's no, disingenuous. It's dishonest. They're full of BS. D- uh, so, Jeff. Yep, go ahead. Jeff. At security of our controllers, who's to say whether this new entity will spend the money that goes into training and making sure that our controllers can pass background checks and security checks the way we do now as a public entity. Well, we're talking about um, a a group of companies that uh, uh, are scrimping on everything. They're charging for seat selections. They're charging for an extra bag. Uh, Who's to say that they're not going to start charging for, uh, well, how many people are aboard that 172? Um, Things like that. one of the things that just sticks in my craw, and Dave touched on it, is this: all this talk about this satellite-based navigation system that we are trying to put into place. Mm-hmm. Guys, we already have that. Yeah. We've had it since the 90s. We've been using it a lot. Um, and it's, it's, it's just really it's disingenuous is one word, but deceptive on a, is another word to suggest, as the airlines sometimes do, that um, they're going to, they're at the cutting edge of, of technology and uh, um, that they adopt all these things first and that all these, um, all these uh, uh, pie-in-the-sky things actually exist right now. They don't. Uh, we, certainly we have satellite-based navigation, but I would suggest to you that uh, general and business aviation uh, have adopted GPS and uh, um, that sort of technology uh, and those those types of operations um, much faster mm-hmm. than the yep. airlines have, if for no other reason than um, the expense of equipping uh, the aircraft and training the crews. Um, the only um, the only satellite based uh, system uh, associated with air traffic control that does not fully exist right now is communication. Uh, we're still using ground-based um, radio transmitters right. to communicate with air traffic control. But that's common throughout the world. Only um, in some uh, areas of the world where there is no ground-based communication, uh, like over the poles or over water, uh, is there the use of satellite-based communication? Mm-hmm. And that technology is more, um, uh, it, it's, it's a lot more restricted than 
the standard VHF that we use to talk to ATC or talk to flight service mm-hmm. or even the CTAF uh, here in the States, um, the bandwidth is very low, the expense is very high, uh, and it also requires special equipment. Uh, it's doable, it's being done, uh, but not uh, this, at the same, you can't just pick up the microphone and, and say, uh, you know, hey, center, uh, who, who won the football game today? It doesn't work like that at the satellite level. Um, and, and probably won't for several more years. Right. That's not a, a function of of uh, equipment on the airplanes or the operator's willingness to adopt it. It's a function of the satellite technology and itself and the number of satellites available. Yeah. So I think what we're doing here is uh, urging listeners, pilots, and people who care about aviation to uh, reach out to your elected representatives and uh, and and express your view that I mean express your view our view is this is a terrible idea and uh, it, yeah, and it exactly. should not not and, uh, and, and here's a here's a leading edge argument that you can make to those of you that have fiscally conservative lawmakers as your representatives ask them are they out of their freaking minds wanting to give away because that's the proposal right now give away tens of billions of dollars in assets in the hardware, the infrastructure, the software, to an entity that will have to make a profit. Now, they talk about, well, this is going to be a non-profit or a not-for-profit organization, but it's going to have to make a profit to pay for salaries, to pay for those equipment upgrades that they say that they can do so much better and they can't even keep up on their own now. Uh, you know, are, 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 are these people deranged? They're going to gift a whole air traffic control system when other parts of the world, the new entities, had to buy it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. So, um, I think, one, yeah. one, Go ahead, Jeb. You close this out final, for us. Yeah, one final thought. Well, two final thoughts. Uh, first of all, anybody who's interested in learning more about this, um, I would send you to uh, the National Business Aviation Association, nbaa.org. Um, if you poke around long enough, you'll find a link to nba.org slash advocacy slash contact and they have a nice slick um, web-based system set up where you can identify your Congress critters, send them email, even phone them uh, and uh, uh, if you wanted to uh, express your views on this topic that would be one way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, um, the other thing I'd point out is there, for a number of years, and we've talked about, we got our, we started out talking about reauthorizing the FAA uh, on this podcast how many years ago yep. because it was a thing back in the day. It's it's also a thing this year. Yes. Um, the the House legislation that would would implement ATC privatization is part of the FAA Reauthorization Act for nineteen uh, for, for nineteen for twenty seventeen. <laughs> uh, the Senate's working on similar legislation, and there's a time uh, uh, there's a calendar involved. September 30, twenty seventeen, the existing authorizations for the FAA expire. Uh, we've all seen this uh, this show before, this, this movie before, and uh, we all know that they'll get down to the wire and they'll come up with something um, at least. Uh, from the standpoint of, of being able to uh, push the ball a little bit further down the road, push the kick the can a little bit further down the road. But a lot of, I guess where I'm coming from here is, a lot of the uh, the 
problem that the ATC privatization uh, legislation is trying to solve is not really a problem. Um, one of the uh, catchphrases is a reliable stream of funding um, to, to use for the air traffic control modernization. Well, that's a bunch of hocus-pocus because we have a reliable stream of funding uh, for mm-hmm. the air traffic control system. It's called the Airport and Airway Trust Fund. And the fuel taxes uh, we pay when we fly GA, the ticket taxes we pay when we fly on the airlines, all go into that, that trust fund and then come out the other end to be used for VORs, for airport runways, for uh, GPS satellites, for whatever is needed in the air traffic control system. If there is a problem with funding, it is Congress's fault for not appropriating adequate funds. Ding. And to, to then say, as Congress is, some in Congress anyway, are trying to say, to then say that there's not enough money to run the FAA's air traffic control system and we have to privatize it is the height of hypocrisy because these same people are not allowing the FAA to be fully funded by their own actions. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the real crime here. Yeah, okay. All right. I bet we talk about this again before the summer's out. But I'll bet we do. I bet we do. Well, and it's a, keep in mind, too, one tiny little departure note of the people and institutions that pay to operate the FAA. The airlines contribute the smallest percentage of their activity, of their revenues. They pay a tiny one, you know, single-digit fuel tax. It's people like us that pay 21 cents or 19 cents per gallon and not four or five cents per gallon like the airlines do. It's the passengers that pay a uh, uh, excise tax on their tickets. It's the shippers that pay an excise tax on their fuel way bills. These are the real constituents of this system, not the airlines. The airlines are, the, are there to make a profit, and this is just an attempt to pad their profits. Yeah. Okay, moving on. We really are reaching. We've we're, 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 we've already reached our allotted time. The end of our allotted time. Um, and I want there's a couple shout outs I want to do. But before we do shout outs, here's one thing I wanted to touch on real quickly here. Um, Jeb, if you'd be so kind to, you just got back from where? Paris. Yeah, I, I haven't asked you in advance, Jeb, whether you're willing to talk about this. Is is this are you okay? Talking? Yeah, I, it's, yeah, okay. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, so so you you were uh, wearing your uh, your international journalist hat. You were at the Paris Air Show, which is somewhat of a, correct, a yeah. legendary uh, uh, event. Um, and I'm guessing that your responsibilities probably restricted you from seeing every nook and cranny of the show. But did you Absolutely. get to see? Did you get to see any of it? Do you have a sense of the show? What was it like? Big. big. Oh, is it big? big. It's, it's yeah. It's it's large. Um, it, it, yes, it's bigger than Oshkosh. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, there's more people, I think. Um, at least at least the parts of the show that I was able to see. Uh huh. And I, as you as you alluded, there's no. I didn't get out that much. I wasn't able to see much of the show. What I did see. Um, from uh, a variety of different vantage points, though, was just a mess of people. Um, uh, a lot of airplanes, uh, not in the sense that um, Oshkosh has a lot of airplanes, but in the sense that um, 
there was a lot of, of uh, commercial and military um, airplanes. The, the Air Force, U.S. Air Force, brought uh, the F-35A for the first time. The 35B had flown at Paris, I guess, two years ago. Mm-hmm. But the F-35A was the it was the first time for it to be at Paris. There were a few airliners that you know their first public showings, things like that. Um, it is, in fact, a, a more commercial and military-oriented right. show yes. um, than anything we do here in the States, per se, um, than, than certainly Sun and Fun or Oshkosh. Sure. Um, but, um, um, I mean, the facility is, is spread out. Uh, it's, it's trying to walk um, from one section to another is... Uh, uh, a lot more cumbersome, or, or certainly, um, um, I, I, let's say, trying to get from Shoulder to to the North Forty would be a common uh, task uh, on a day to day or an hourly basis for some people, mm-hmm. and that's just a, that's just a lot of distance to cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Do, did you get? Did you come away with any sense of what the the stories were? What was the big story? What was the you know, or was there one? Maybe there wasn't one. And and I and I'm gonna I'm leading you into something here, but I'll let you answer first. Okay. I, my personal reaction or my personal takeaway uh, from this year's Paris Air Show is that there wasn't that much news. Okay. There weren't. You know, Airbus didn't come in and say we're gonna we're gonna build the Airbus A390. Boeing didn't come in and say we're gonna build the 797. Um, things like that. There were a lot of incremental um, uh, announcements. There were no blockbusters that you know would lead the evening news back here in the states, for example. Um, there were a lot of. Um, let me put it this way: um, it was evolutionary and not revolutionary. Okay. The story I heard, and maybe you didn't hear anything about this, the story I heard was that there was a lot, I mean, like a lot of uh, UAS drone-related stories and announcements and, and, and so forth. Did you have any sense of that? Um, there were. Uh, they were primarily, from my perspective, and keep in mind that, you know, I was there uh, with a job to do, and, and part of that job um well, let me put it another way. The, the job didn't really allow me to roam. Yes. It allowed me to to work on uh, other people's ideas of what the important stories were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, there was there was a lot of drone activity. Uh, it was primarily uh, military oriented. Yeah. Uh huh. Yep. That's that's sort of consistent with what I'd heard too. Um, David, I know you watch this stuff from afar. Um, did you get any sense of the Paris Air Show this year from from your Aerie there in Wichita? Yeah, uh, and from comparing it to some of the Paris Air Shows, I yeah you've got attended to cover a few times, right? right? Yeah, I, I went three times, and uh, and Jeb's right. Uh, real estate wise, it's bigger than Oshkosh. Uh, Crowd-wise, during the industry days, it's not quite Oshkosh, but when it opens up to the public for the last days of the show, right. and then it blows Oshkosh out of the water in one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the total week of Oshkosh gets, shows up at Le Bourget in one day. Uh, but they sold a boatload of airliners, They uh, both Airbus and Boeing. Boeing, uh, I think, came out on top of that. 
Boeing salted some discussions uh, about a replacement for the 757. Uh, and whether that would be another version of the 37 is uh, the big question. Is that this but 737 they, Max we're hearing about? Uh, the 30, 737 Max is, is basically the biggest uh, 737 they've ever made. Yeah. And uh, the 757 still beats it a little bit in terms of capacity mm-hmm. and speed. So they're looking for something to go in that niche. Uh Business aviation-wise, uh, a couple of the uh, a couple of the uh, newer business jets made their first appearances over there, uh, and uh, I think one of them actually appeared at Farnborough last year, and this was its first year at Paris. Uh, but there wasn't a tremendous amount of activity reported on the business aviation side, but enough to you know make it worth the dailies going there to report on it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, and a fair amount of off to the side military negotiations uh, done b- between vendors here in the states and some of their uh, clients overseas, and that seldom makes front page news because most of it's done on the QT. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Anything else? No. Uh, well, just, it was the same one show. More observa- yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. One more observation would be. Uh, um. A lot of yeah, Dave's right. There were a lot of airline orders that were announced during the show. Um, the thing with those announcements, um, this is not you know some airline spur of the moment decided to go to Paris and buy fifty Boeing's. Um, this is a culmination of probably you know years of negotiations and and studies and considerations by the carrier. Right. They just announced it. Yeah, working with the manufacturer to configure the airplane like they want it, uh, things like that. Um, They're simply announced at the show um, because there's a, you know, kind of a uh, mine is bigger than yours contest going on between uh, uh, Boeing and Airbus and and other manufacturers. Um, if, If there was any new, well, Talking talking about the the 737 Max, for example, uh, the Max Nine uh, was on display and, and did some some demos, flight demos, and things like that. The Max Ten had been announced, maybe at Farnborough, maybe uh, um, between um, the two shows over the year. Um, Farnborough being last year, Farnborough and Paris alternate years. Uh, Paris is every two years, Farnborough is every two years, but. Um, um, you know, you know, there were the, you know, Cirrus was there with the with the Vision Jet, for example. Gulfstream's uh, soon to be certified later this year. Uh, Six fifty was there, um, things like that, and, and that's not really news news, but it's you know, okay, um, it's it's uh, it's neat stuff. Um, there were uh, you know a couple of announcements from ATR that I found kind of interesting. I'd kind of written off ATR a few years ago uh, as, as um, just not being competitive, but they actually sold a bunch of airframes um, and coming out with some, some tricks and, and um, uh, tweaks to some of their existing airframes. Um, the, the short ATR-42 is being uh, modified to get into shorter uh, runway. They're calling it a stole version almost. Hmm. Um, um, short being in the eye of the beholder, of course. Um, so there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. There was a, 
there's a company called Boom Technologies that um, says they're on a fast track for developing a supersonic uh, a transport, seating, I'm going to probably flub it, 55 passengers in a business class configuration uh, and going Mach 2.2 or something like that. And they've got a hellaciously ambitious timetable and, and stuff like that. And, of course, a lot of the a lot of the media was really eating that stuff up with a spoon. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of way down the road kind of stuff, and uh, they still haven't figured out how to work around various uh, regulatory issues, things of that sort. So um, they have, you know, a nice pretty booth and, and pretty mock-ups and, and uh, brochures and things like that, but uh, um, they don't have an airframe yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sounds interesting. I'm I'm a little jealous that you got to go there, but uh, yeah. So, uh, oh, one yeah, last question. I am, I'm. Go ahead. No, I was going to say one last question, Jeb, about your Paris experience. Uh, did you find any good fish and chips while you were there? <laughs> <laughs> Shout outs. I, I, there probably was a bunch around me, but I never partake. Partook. How, how about escargot? I love getting escargot in France. I did not get escargot either, but I got some very good duck one night. Oh wow! Uh, and some very good pasta dishes, salads. Um, didn't I did not have a bad meal? Let's who, put it that way. Yeah, really good food in Paris. Who would have thunk it? Right? You know? <laughs> yeah, last, thunk it. yeah. Last time in Paris, the worst meal I had was at a Burger King. <laughs> yeah. 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 Shout outs here. We got to wrap this thing up here. We're running long here. Um, I've got one shout out on the list of the last one there. If you guys want to jump in, you, gonna, you got any shout outs? Yeah. Um, I, the, um, Jeb, this you go has first. Been reported. Yeah, yeah, this has been reported. And I'm sorry, I keep jumping on people because I can't hear you very no, well. No, we understand. You're sounding good. Go ahead. Um, the, the, let, me, let me open this link. You might have to pause this. Yep. Um, the. Uh, the King of the Netherlands. I know, isn't this great? King <laughs> Willem Alexander, reigning monarch of the Netherlands, uh, revealed in May his Walter Mitty hobby. Yeah, but he's but, been. Yeah. You go ahead. Go ahead. No, not, he, not Walter Mitty because it's not an imaginary thing, right? Go ahead. No, it, it, yeah, his Walter Mitty side. Uh, it's not an imaginary thing. Uh, he's been an FO. For KLM short haul carrier, the, the KLM City Hopper, for 21 years. For 20 and years. No one knew been, about it. The king has been an airline pilot. That's just an yeah. awesome story. It's, I just, it's, it's just it's just perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's just perfect. Um, I, yeah. In in as as my adult years have gone on, I keep hearing interesting things about the Netherlands, and this just adds to it. The Netherlands is is a right. much cooler place than I think many people give them credit for. And uh, the king has been a working airline pilot. Is just can you just imagine? I mean, I know. Holy is, is he flying? Is he flying Poker F one hundred? Well, he's sitting. He's sitting at the yoke of a Fokker seventy. Oh, um, cool. in, this, in the lead graph. Yeah. 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 So of course, Fokker is 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 uh, a Dutch airframe manufacturer from you know World War One, um, and uh, uh, now he's fl- he's flying Fokkers. Um, I, I think the whole thing is just hilarious. Uh, more power to him. Um, and uh, it's a it's just a great story. It is. It absolutely is. David, shoutouts. Uh, yeah, 
And tell you what, why don't you find yours and get ready, and I'll jump in to do mine in the meantime. So well, I've been yours? I've been boring people um, in recent months about my friend Drew, uh, who I told you a couple months back um, bought a Cessna 172 without ever having taken a single flying lesson, um, because he just always wanted to have an airplane, and the opportunity presented itself, so he dove in and uh, and then began his flying lessons and has been uh, regaling me from time to time about his progress. And I just want to publicly say, uh, point out that, uh, that last week, Dre- uh, Drew uh, had his first solo. Uh, he, uh, Yay! Yeah, and, Way to uh, go, Drew. Uh, he texted me almost immediately. He insists. So I was. we were on a job together just recently, and uh, he, as you might imagine, or maybe not know, but if you knew Drew, you'd understand that he had uh, GoPro cameras running. He had like three GoPros running in his solo airplane. Um, and so we're watching him, and he taxis up to the hold short line and he pauses at the hold short line and i saw him reach for his phone all right and i thought okay he's turning off his phone or he's doing something like that and i asked him i said well, what are you doing there he says jack i was texting you <laughs> oh, really <laughs> he's uh <laughs> and it's very gratifying and it's it's uh, it's a uh, humbling actually that that drew is referred to me as his, as his mentor um and certainly this podcast as his mentor um he's been very very uh, kind in his comments about but um you know uh, how we've helped him along and given him ideas and inspired him and and i just have to say and and this is i mean in addition to saying congratulations on first solo i want to thank drew because i'm finding drew's enthusiasm about the whole process to be really infectious i mean it's just thrilling to listen to how excited he is about the process of this whole thing about the, the new skills that he's learning and the new capabilities he's going to have once he you know uh, you know achieves his private pilot license and and uh, it's just very very cool and so uh, drew you know way to go and uh, and i know you're going to keep it up i don't need to urge you to do that so uh, and, and congratulations, congratulations for, for solo way, way to go drew yeah yeah uh david did you figure I, it out what do you got yeah i got one it wasn't the one i was planning on but i decided it's a better one anyway uh i want to give a shout out to the uh good folks in uh, the bahamas this back in late may the bahamas civil aviation authority announced that pilots with basic med medical certification are welcome to fly to the islands of the bahamas on their private aircraft and as they were with the uh, light sport pilot certificate and light sport aircraft type, the Bahamas was the first country uh, to recognize basic med and allow pilots that fly under that certification to uh, visit the Bahamas in their light airplanes. And guys, there's no easier way, folks, there's no easier way to break your international cherry than to fly 56 miles from Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas, 56 nautical. So that'd be like 61 for those of you that only have airspeed indicators and miles an hour. <laughs> it's worth the trip. Yeah, no, it's I've... a ball. And, uh, and once you get there, there's other islands you can visit. Yeah, yeah. No, I've heard, I've never done this, but I've heard that that it's uh, that it's a relatively easy trip. Um, and uh, yeah, just exactly right for a small airplane. Now for the rest of the world. Who's going to be second? Yeah, well, we got to get yeah, Canada right. on board here, I think. But yes, okay. Yeah, I'd like to see Canada and Mexico line up with us too. Yeah, yeah. 
Sounds good. All right, then. Thank you. Real, real quick, one, one more little shout-out. Not yeah. so much a shout-out as, as a vector uh, to our listeners. Um, the San Diego Union Tribune, um, back, oh, I don't know, a month or so ago, uh, came across some photographs um, dating back from the 20s. And, in fact, uh, uh, 90, 90 years ago. And uh, they are uh, un- previously unpublished photographs of Charles Lindbergh and the Spirit of St. Louis, which, not coincidentally, was built in San Diego. Uh, and I just find that whole thing fascinating. Yeah. And there's a, we'll put a link to, the, uh, to that webpage uh, in our show notes. But uh, if you want to see some, some really uh, interesting photographs and things that heretofore had not been known or not been published, uh, click that link. Yeah, that sounds great. I want to look at that. Absolutely. Thank you, boys. It's always fun. I really appreciate you taking some time. Uh, and uh, we finally broke the... It was a big gap. People, I don't know if anybody's paying attention, but it was a big gap between recording sessions. But uh, we aren't gone. We're still here. Uh, my two good friends, Dave Higdon. Is a, Dave is an aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's Ab Buyer Magazine. What have you been working on, David? Anything you want to tell us about? Well, I've got a uh, business aviation blog on avbuyer.com. Uh, it should be up today. Uh talking about why we should be thrilled that we live in the United States as we're uh, as pilots celebrating the 4th of July. Very cool. Very cool. And where can people find you on the internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, aviationsafetymagazine.com, or do a Google search. And remember, I don't play golf, and my theoretical physics are really theoretical. (laughs) And Jim Burnside is a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What have you been working on? I know you just did a new new, new uh, month, month's version, right? Yeah, I just uh, earlier today, actually, uh, put together, put to bed uh, the August uh, issue of Aviation Safety Magazine. There's some guy named Higdon who got the cover story on that sucker Ooh. this year. Yeah. Um, and uh, a bunch of other material in there that's it's always good for the soul, uh, good for the aviation, uh, good for the aviators, I should say. Um, but otherwise, uh, um, and of course, uh, the Paris Air Show thing, that was uh, for Aviation International News. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, had, a, I guess, the cover story for uh, Avionics News a couple of months ago. Um, and uh, working on some more articles for them. Uh, haven't written anything for general aviation news lately, but I'm hoping to get back in that. I uh, hope you do. Saddle. Those are good stories. Uh, I like yeah. what you do over there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just ran out of time and, and energy and, yeah. and had to let something go for a while, and and uh, hopefully I, I can get back into that. So mm-hmm. there's all that going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, my two good friends here, I'll see uh, uh, hopefully uh, in a few weeks at some some air show up north. Yeah, I know, huh? Uh, so in the meantime, on? let's. Uh, I guess in the meantime, uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com, um, uh, aea.net for the Aircraft Electronics Association, General Aviation News for for that publication. And, um, you know, who knows? You, you might find me in the, in the local police plotter. Who knows? Well, you know, where it, okay, there's a joke there. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I'm, oh, did you say Twitter? I don't know. Did you say Twitter? Oh, I didn't say Twitter, but Burnside J on the Twitter machine. Burnside J. 
And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a digital media producer. Uh, you can find me on the internet uh, at uh, twitter.com slash Jack Hodgson. Uh, I also do uh, uh, videos, some of them on aviation, uh, at youtube.com slash Jack Hodgson. You can sign up for my email newsletter and learn more about me than you ever really wanted to know at my, base, my regular website, jackhodgson.com. A uh, big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for all his help with the show notes and in the forums and other, the many other ways that he helps us out. Uh, we can't thank him enough. Uh, thanks to uh, Mike Morgan and to Royce Earl and to Jim Goldman and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. Uh, they're a lot of fun. And uh, Mike Morgan, of course, also creates a lot of, uh, of uh, in the industry, they call them liners, I believe, which is the uh, sort of promo pieces and, and opening audio segments that you hear, particularly at Oshkosh. Um, and and otherwise, and Jim Goldman helps us out a lot with uh, with uh, special episodes and and uh, if show dailies and things like that. So uh, thanks to all those folks. Um, please support UCAP by making a repeating per episode donation of any size via the online service Patreon. Uh, you can get all the details about this at patreon.com slash uncontrolled airspace. And while you're at it, go into iTunes and give us a review and a thumbs up and some stars and uh, that kind of stuff really helps get the word out about the pop, the uh, podcast. Please follow uh, the podcast on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash class G airspace. That's uh, all one word, the word class, the letter G and the word airspace. You never know what might turn up there. Uh, you can also listen to UCAP in the free section of Sporty's Pilot Shop's mobile app Takeoff, along with other podcasts and special Sporty's content. Get your UCAP hats, shirts, and other cool gear at the UCAP Swag Shop. That's at uncontrolledairspace.com slash store. And don't forget, you can check out the rest of the UCAP website. 11 years worth of UCAP show notes and episode downloads. All of that uh, is uh, on the, on the uh, UCAP website. And last but not least, chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, please help me out here. Tell us something something. Uh, profound the most profound thing that i can think of is an old line you've heard before uh, you want to live long and uh, happy life enjoy aviation go fly because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan bye-bye and that's enough talking let's go flying you know the disclaimers are starting to get longer than the content <laughs> well not today but yeah <laughs> point well taken <laughs>